This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Survivors of the 2002 Bali bombing say they're disgusted that the chief bomb maker behind the attacks has been released from jail. Umar Patek had served only 11 years of his 20-year sentence, but remissions for good behaviour cut his jail term. One Australian who gave evidence at Patek's trial says he's sceptical the convicted terrorist is truly remorseful. Indonesia correspondent Ann Barker reports. Perth man Peter Hughes helped to convict Umar Patek when he gave evidence at his trial 10 years ago. He remembers sitting in a Jakarta court metres from the man who helped build the bomb that almost killed him and left him with lifelong injuries. He says he felt he was doing a service to all victims, especially the 88 Australians who died. But the 20-year sentence Patek received has now been almost halved. We were determined to make sure this guy got the, the harshest chance sentence ever and he didn't get that. Maybe we did a small part to put him away but not long enough. Less than 12 years after his arrest, Umar Patek is now a free man. Indonesian authorities say he's fulfilled all the requirements for parole after remissions for good behaviour cut years off his sentence. He was released yesterday morning. The Director-General of Indonesia's Correctional Facilities, Rika Aprianti, says Patek is no longer radicalised and has the right to his freedom. The special requirements that have been met by Umar Patek are that he's participated in the de-radicalisation coaching program, she says. Though Umar Patek will remain on parole until 2030 and if he breaches the conditions, his freedom could be revoked. Peter Hughes says the notion that Patek is remorseful or no longer a threat is fanciful. You know, this guy was a mastermind that uh, set this all up along, along with people like Bashir and many others. And uh, there's a history of people like him. They, um, they won't stop. You know, for him to be let out, it's laughable. Australia had lobbied to keep Patek in jail for the full term, with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in August saying his impending release would be abhorrent and cause further distress to bombing victims. Indonesia deliberately delayed his release till after the bombing anniversary in October and last month's G20 summit in Bali. Anti-terror authorities are hoping he can help to de-radicalise other terror recruits in Indonesia. But for Peter Hughes and other Australians, Umar Patek is a mass murderer who will always be a hero to younger terrorists. There's no chance of him actually being turned around in any, any perspective. And I think the Indonesian government have actually pulled the wrong rein here with a person that um, that can do more damage than good. And uh, after 10 years, after kill, killing 202 people, seriously, they can't, be, they can't be serious in terms of what they need to do with people like himself. Perth man Peter Hughes ending that report by Indonesia correspondent Anne Barker. Australia's quest to acquire nuclear-powered submarines has been discussed at a meeting in Washington between the Defence Ministers from Australia, the US and the UK. It's the first face-to-face AUKUS meeting and comes a day after Australia's Defence and Foreign Ministers met their US counterparts for the annual Osmin talks. The Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles joined me earlier. Richard Miles, thanks for joining AM. A pleasure, Fabra. What progress have you made in sorting out which nuclear-powered submarines Australia will acquire and when they'll be delivered? Well, the 
optimal pathway uh, is now crystallising. That's really what's come out of the meeting with the United States and the United Kingdom today in, in our first AUKUS Defence Ministers meeting. And we've been uh, forecasting that we will make an announcement in the first part of next year. Um, we're certainly on track to do that. And so there's really good progress. But there's still more to be done. Um, you know, Obviously, uh, the, the specifics of this needs to go through the, the decision-making processes of all the countries. It needs to go through our own in Australia. Um, and, and that so there's some water to go under the bridge here. But, but the, the optimal pathway is now crystallising and, um, and we're pretty excited about it. Have you made a decision yet on whether it will be a UK or a US submarine? We'll announce all of that when we make the announcement. But I would, I would say this, that you know, whereas perhaps earlier on in the process one might have uh, imagined that this could turn into some competitive process, what's really been clear as this has evolved is that it's been a genuine collaboration between well, the United States and the United Kingdom, first of all, uh, and with, with the two of them with us to provide uh, Australia with a uh, capability of operating a, a nuclear-powered submarine um, and and speaks, speaks, I think, to a shared mission to, to achieve this in what is a pretty um, precarious and complex world. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has said that Australia won't be left with a capability gap while we wait for nuclear submarines. Can you explain what other types of weapons the US might supply? Uh, well, uh, again, a, a lot of this will, will form part of the announcement that we ultimately make next year. But I am pleased that he said what he said because I've been articulating for some time now that uh, dealing with questions of a capability gap would be would need to be part of the work that we're undertaking right now, and that really. Um, emanates from the fact that we effectively had a lost decade in relation to the successor submarine class Arthur Collins, um, and and given that lost decade, there has been the you know the, the real potential for there to be a capability gap. And so, you know, first of all, we need to be looking at ways in which we can get um, our first uh, nuclear-powered submarine as soon as possible. But to the extent that there is a capability gap. Which, which arises, we need to have answers as to how to plug that. Now, I, I feel confident we will be able to have those answers. I think that's what Secretary Austin was speaking to when he made those comments. But but we've been saying for some time now that that, that needs to and will form part of the announcements that we make uh, when we announce the optimal pathway next year. So in talking about things being crystallised as well, are you any closer to knowing if a so-called Son of Collins submarine will be needed to bridge that capability gap between the existing Collins-class subs and the nuclear-propelled subs? Well, I suppose the answer to that question is we are in, in, the, in, the, in saying that the, the optimal pathway is now crystallising. I mean, as, as the three countries have worked together, we can, we can now see... Um, the, the, the pathway forward. Uh, you know, we've all gone into this in good faith. The three countries are very much committed to, uh, to to the outcome of this AUKUS process, but there is still some water to go under the bridge here. But you know, I feel confident that we're going to be able to land this, and we'll be able to land this in in the first part of next year, which is what our plan was. Uh, this will represent a complete transformation in terms of Australia's capabilities um, and our strategic posture. The US has agreed to step up its rotations of American forces in Australia. Is that going to mean more US submarines and ships on top of troops? We want to uh, do more force posture cooperation across all domains. Um, 
not not just uh, Army, but Army, Air Force and Navy. Uh, and, and we have talked about um, having more visits of American Navy vessels, uh, including submarines, into Australia. And indeed, the USS Mississippi has been in uh, Australia over the last uh, week or two. Um, so so it, this is not uh, new, but we do want to step up the tempo of this. And again, I think what that really reflects is is seeking to build Australian capability, knowing that one of the key assets that we have with our capability uh, is the alliances and the partnerships that we have around the world, and obviously particularly with the United States. But from here, uh, the Foreign Minister and I will be going to uh, Japan tonight. We're meeting with uh, Japan uh, on Friday um, and seeking to get greater Japanese involvement in uh, force posture cooperation really will be an important outcome we, we will be seeking from that meeting. And finally, are you disappointed that the Chief Bali Bomber, Umar Patek, has been released from jail after serving just over half of his sentence? Well, I think this is going to be a very difficult day for um, many Australians, all Australians, um, to hear about the release of Umar Patek. And, uh, and I'm particularly thinking right now of... Uh, the families of those who were killed and injured in, in the Bali bombings. And we've made it repeated representations to the Indonesian government um, about uh, the early release of Umar Patek. Um, and we will continue to make repeated representations to the Indonesian government about making sure that there is uh, constant surveillance of, of Umar Patek. But uh, this, this is, I think, a very difficult day for the country and it's a particularly difficult day uh, for the families of those, as I said, who were, were killed and injured in the Bali bombings. Richard Miles, thanks for joining AM this morning. Thank you, Sarah. And Richard Miles is the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister. As we wait for the details of what deal the federal government struck with the states to tackle soaring energy prices, the nation's energy ministers are meeting to discuss how to shore up supplies in the medium and long term. More renewable power is at the heart of that and the clean energy regulator is forecasting that 2023 could be a near record year for electricity generation from new residential rooftop solar installations. However, as John Daly reports, homeowners are facing lengthy waiting times for installations. 3.4 million rooftop solar systems across Australia and counting. Solar power is popular and more households are turning to it to try to counter soaring energy costs. Tim Dixon, owner of Solar Australia, a retailer which sells solar systems across the country, has seen a sharp increase in sales since mid-year. We've had a threefold increase. The, the, the other component to that is, is we're now actually doing uh, solar with battery um, and backup circuits for blackout protection. Basically, it didn't exist, you know, much two, two, three years ago. Now it's probably hitting around 35 to 40% of our total sales. The federal budget forecast a 56% increase in retail electricity prices over two years, and the Albanese government's now trying to figure out what market intervention and other mechanisms it could use to drive costs down. Finn Peacock is the founder of Solar Quotes, a digital platform that connects consumers with installers. He says traffic to the site has been off the charts since the upheaval in the East Coast energy grid began earlier this year. The traffic has been off the charts. It started about six months ago towards the end of June when the media and the politicians started talking about 
quote, energy crisis. The clean energy regulator recently upgraded its forecast for newly installed rooftop solar this year from 300,000 units to 320,000. The executive general manager, Mark Williamson, says rising energy costs are contributing to the surge. Yes, it's changed dramatically. So we've now revised this year's numbers up from 2.3 gigawatts of total capacity added to around about 2.7 to 2.8 gigawatts uh, total added this year. So it's been quite a, a big uptick. Next year's forecast is higher. The regulator expects there'll be another 350,000 rooftop solar units installed, adding three gigawatts of capacity, equivalent to the capacity generated by one coal-fired power unit. It could get very close to the record year, which was last year, at 3.2 gigawatts, which is the biggest year ever. But homeowners hoping to quickly offset rising energy costs may be in for a shock. Finn Peacock says there are considerable supply bottlenecks as installers scramble to fulfil demand. I accept a quote today, you're probably looking at end of February before you'll get an install. Um, yeah, and that's gen generally when it goes out to three months, installers start turning away business because they don't want to stretch it out much further than that. In the meantime, the Prime Minister and state and territory leaders are meeting tomorrow to map out a plan of how to intervene in energy markets in order to tackle soaring prices. John Daly reporting there. Despite severe flooding along Australia's east coast, some rural communities are starkly aware they're edging closer to drought. An ABC analysis shows 55 towns came close to running out of water during the last extreme dry event. There are warnings the risks of it happening again are greater than ever. Here's National Regional Affairs reporter Lucy Barber. For the community of Stanthorpe in southeast Queensland, the last drought was the worst in modern memory. Samantha and Russell Wantling were horrified at what people went through. Yeah, no water to even get up in the morning to brush their teeth. It was such a concern, you know, when you have to send your kid down to a, a spring in the middle of your paddock to get a bit of water to bring up to wash with, you know, schools run programs to because the kids were starting to smell and they had to, you know, without the embarrassment, they had to, they started sharing some of the kids at school. They had to. It was, it was horrific. Locals were forced to live on 80 litres of water per person per day. That's less than half what what someone in Sydney uses daily. The Wantlings started a charity that delivered tens of millions of litres of free water to residents. And Samantha Wantling is worried they may have to do it again during the next big dry. Something we had during the drought was, I would say, every politician, local, federal or state, come up and, you know, grace us with their presence, get the great photo with someone who was deserving and say, we will never let this happen again and go away. But what has happened now is it's raining, so I feel the need for water security is, is, is on the back bench. There's good reason to be concerned, according to Professor of Regional Economic Development at Central Queensland University, John Rolfe. We've got more people living in urban areas. We're allocating out the water at a faster rate. There's not as much water left in the systems that are unallocated. He says extreme weather, as well as increases in population and agricultural productivity, have left rural and regional areas more likely to run dry. So all of these things mean that there are greater risks, I think, of shortages into the future. But there are signs that governments are making water security in country towns a bigger priority. The federal government's National Water Grid Authority, which funds pipelines, dams and bores, has been asked to invest in infrastructure that boosts town as well as agricultural water supply. 
And in New South Wales, a billion dollars has been spent on various projects already. The New South Wales government had previously really focused on um, making sure that our metropolitan, uh, Sydney and the Greater Hunter water supplies were safe and secure. Acting Chief Executive of Water Infrastructure New South Wales, Ingrid Emery, says almost 450,000 people will have far better access to water during dry times. But progress has been slow. Flooding in particular has been really challenging because it meant that it's been really difficult to access sites even, let alone do any construction works on them. I can't say with any certainty that when we come into drought, all of those projects will be finished and then enough will have been done. Um, but we'll be certainly well on the way to, to getting a lot more towns in a better position to be able to deal with the next drought. Ingrid Emery from Water Infrastructure New South Wales. That report from Lucy Barber and Nathan Morris. Prosecutors say a far-right group inspired by QAnon and deep state conspiracy theories was preparing a violent plot to overthrow the German government. 25 members and supporters of the group Citizens of the Reich have been arrested. Local authorities believe armed members were planning to storm the parliamentary building in Berlin. Here's East Europe correspondent Steve Kinane. In the German city of Frankfurt, a 71-year-old cravat-wearing aristocrat is being frog-marched into a police van. He goes by the name of Prince Heinrich Thirteenth and prosecutors allege that members of the citizens of the Reich plan to overthrow the government and install him as the country's leader. Federal prosecutor Peter Frank said that the group already had its own cabinet ready to take over government. This group set up a kind of council, he says, which is supposed to be a kind of government organisation which was split up into different departments, just like the cabinet of a country. Several individuals were already earmarked to take over different ministries, such as for their justice minister, a former member of the German Bundestag. That former MP is Birgit Molsack-Winkermann, who is a judge at the Berlin District Court. Local media is reporting that she was arrested at her apartment. Prosecutors say that more than 3,000 police and security forces were involved in the raids and the arrests in Germany, Italy and Austria. Germany's Interior Minister Nancy Faeser said that the citizens of the Reich were united by hatred for democracy, for our state and for people who support our community. Based on current findings, she said, the suspected terrorist group uncovered today was founded based on coup d'etat fantasies and conspiracy ideologies. Only a further investigation will give us a clear picture how far advanced those coup plans were. Claudia Valner is a research fellow in terrorism and conflict at RUSI. From Berlin, she told AM that the group did pose a threat as they had access to weapons and people who knew how to use them. They had very concrete plans to, to overthrow the government and they were clearly willing and able to, to use violence to achieve this. They were clearly aware that this was going to involve murdering people in the process and they had already gotten hold of weapons. They had um, former members of the military in their ranks, and that also included actively recruiting um, police officers, uh, members of the military, um, former and current, for this cause. And they were clearly um, quite successful with that, and that's obviously very concerning. Eight members of the group are already in pre-trial detention, with suspects due to appear before a judge in the coming days. 
This is Steve Kinane reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. While energy giants have made massive excess profits this year worth billions of dollars, consumers are facing soaring power bills. Today, the ABC's energy reporter, Dan Mercer, and the government's plan to intervene in the market to ease the pain. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.